<clears throat> as we come to the scripture, let me ask you please to, to pray with me. Father in heaven, now as we come to your word, I pray that you'd help us, that you'd enable us, God, to see that which is true, to believe it, to embrace it, um, to live it. Father, we know there's resistance that we have, honestly, we know to your word. And so I pray that you would overcome all of our resistance and transform our lives. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Genesis in chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, please. I want to begin uh, reading with verse 26, and I want to read through chapter 2, uh, through chapter 2, chapter 2 and verse 24. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Hear the word of God. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plants of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the grounds, and mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the grounds. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in, the, in Eden in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The, name, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now remember... Uh, we have uh, taken up this notion of covenant, and this morning I want to consider again this covenant that God made with and at 
creation, the covenant of, of creation. We're looking at covenant because God has said through it, he reveals to us his heart, his purposes, his plans to us. This relationship that we have with God, that creation has with God, that we have with God is covenantal. That means that God has identified himself to be creator and we are his. We are made he says, in his image. That's the unique aspect of, of human beings being made in the very image of God. We're to reflect him like nothing else in all of creation. And we can say, how is it that we reflect God? And he's laid out for us some ways in which we do that. We see that we're to fill the earth and subdue it. We're to fill the earth by way of union of, uh, of a man and a woman. Uh, men and women a man and a woman, husband and wife, come together, have children. The earth is filled in that sense, you see. And that is a, a mandate, if you will, an ordinance, that which is ordained at creation for all of humanity. There's a sense in which this is what it means in part to be human is to be part of family. And so we find that this creation ordinance, as we say, that which is ordained or instituted at creation, is for really all of, all of humanity. And it reflects God. It reflects God because God is love. And as, as, as a husband and wife come together in love and children come and family exists, there's to be love in the context of human experience, human beings. One person to another, one family to another, even if you will. Communities wherein people love. That's to reflect God. If there had been no sin, and when we find ourselves on the new earth, what we will find without sin is that love defines relationship from one human being to another. We don't find that now. We find it, hopefully, in the context of the lives of believers. We're being transformed to love, to love one another, and so forth. But this love is to reflect, to bear the image, really, of God. God is social in, in himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's love from one to the other. And thus when he creates, he creates in the context of more than one so that there can be a reflection of himself, which is love. You see also that we're to glorify him as he institutes or ordains this day called Sabbath, this time of rest wherein we cease from work and gaze upon him. That is glorifying to him. It shows, it reveals his glory because it shows our dependence, not upon ourselves, the six days that we work, but our dependence upon him. Thus, Sabbath is that which reflects, which glorifies God. It's to be true of us. We're to kick back. We're to stop this one day in seven and reflect upon God to put all of our life in context, if you will, consciously in him. So this sense of Sabbath, uh, that is a way that we glorify, that we image God. He rested on the Sabbath and was refreshed. We rest in Sabbath and thus are refreshed as well. And then finally, this last one, this last ordinance of, of taking dominion over the earth, which we would define in a sense as working. Notice in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in, your, in, in our image and our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and over the livestock. This, this, this sense of this creation ordinance wherein we take dominion, where we work. Some have referred to this historically as, as the cultural mandate. Uh, what is amazing here is that God calls us uh, to work in, to, to extend, really, his creation. Now, this work, this taking dominion, images God because God works. He works in creation. For instance, in chapter 2 and verse 1, we read this. Um, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work. And his work had been his work of creation. So when, when we think of God, we think of him, we should think of him, at least in part, as one who works. And he worked in the context of creation. He continues to work as he sustains his uh, creation. For instance, in uh, Colossians, uh, in chapter 1, in verse 16, the apostle speaks of, of, of God um, 
like this, uh, really, of our Lord Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So even now, all things are holding together in God here, most particularly our Lord Jesus. The author of Hebrews speaks in a similar fashion of Jesus. It's in chapter 1, of verse 3, he writes, He's the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So even now, God is, is working, that is, he's, he's, he's sustaining, if you will, uh, preserving all that he's created. God is at work, working out his plan, working out his, 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 his desires through history. He worked, God did, through our Lord Jesus Christ to bring redemption. A day will come at the return of Christ when he'll work to renew the heavens and the earth, thus to be called the new heavens and the new earth. All of that. So we see that God is a work, that God, that God indeed works. He works to sustain his creation even now, to work out his plan through history, to provide uh, all that his creation really uh, ultimately, ultimately, need, ultimately needs. And we're to work as well. Uh, we're to work because God works and we're created in his in his image. Um, and again, what's astounding about all this as we take dominion over the earth, if you think about it, is that God has called us to under him, yet with him, to rule, to take dominion over the earth. Which is to say that if God is the great king over all, then we as human beings are lesser kings who rule. If, if God is the chief regent, if you will, the head regent, the head governor, we're the vice regent, if you will, under him. If God is the chief shepherd, then we are under shepherds. If God is the owner, then we are the stewards. But you see, the high calling to which we have as the crown of God's creation uh, to take dominion. And we are to cultivate then the earth. It was Adam's call, it was Adam's job, if you will, in taking dominion, which was to work. Notice in chapter 2 and verse 5, Moses writes, When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God has not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work the ground. In other words, so he wanted, he needed a man to come, the job of human beings, the job of the man, to work the ground. And then, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And so this is a call, a high calling to labor, a high calling to work. That's, that's, that's what we're to do, to work. We are uh, with God to rule and to reign, to work, to take dominion over the earth. And, and this is, 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 is not to change. In other words, uh, a day will come on the new heavens and the new earth when we shall reign as well. For instance, in the book of Revelation in chapter 5, when... The great song is being sung about Jesus, this one who is worthy to take the scroll of, of all of history and to open its seals. They speak of him, they sing of him like this. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom of, and, and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So, so think of that in the context of our work, of our labor, what we'll call in a minute our vocations, we're ruling and reigning with, with God. That is, that is what we do. And, and, and that's our responsibility. Not only that, it's a commandment. Uh, the commandment that we normally get hung up about the Sabbath and what we're able to do on the Sabbath and what all that means begins like this. Six days you shall labor. That's no less a command than to set apart the Sabbath day. The Sabbath makes no sense other than this commandment as well to labor, to work. That doesn't necessarily mean work in the marketplace, but we're to be busy. We're to be about this creation. We're to be about taking dominion. We're to be about doing six Days, he says, the other six, so that this one makes sense in the context of rest. In fact, the author of Ecclesiastes, the, the preacher, uh, says that we are that, that this work from God is a gift. 
If you know the book of Ecclesiastes, you know that, 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 that he's very realistic. In fact, uh, almost too realistic, it seems, for us about what life is really like, especially life without God. And then when he sees, the, the preacher sees life with God, uh, he realizes that work is a gift. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 9, he writes, What gain has the worker from his toil? He says, I've seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them, that is for us, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to him. I don't know how you think of the work that you do, whether it's work in the context of your home, whether it's work outside of the home in the marketplace, whether it's being a student, which is a work, which is a calling as well. However that is, I don't know how you, you, you see it, but God says it's a gift to us. It's, it's, it's really the ordinary life for human beings to work. It's fascinating as we read through the Psalms, for instance, in Psalm 100, which one? I'll see it in a minute. Psalm 104, I believe. Psalm 104, God speaks of how it is that uh, he sustains his creation. For instance, Psalm 104, just begin in verse 10. uh, Speaking of God, the psalmist writes, You, that is God, make springs gush forth from the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruits of your work. And so you get this great psalm of creation and the, sus- the sustaining of creation. And you get the impression that it's just going to continue to talk about all that God does. But then in verse 14, there's a break. It says, you, that is God, caused the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate. And everything else, it's for them, for them. But now he, he makes these plants so that we can work the ground, so that we can cultivate, so that he, meaning human beings, man, can bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. In other words, you do all of this, you sustain this creation so that people can work. And so that from their work, then stuff, things can be produced so that needs are met. Same thing in verse 19. He that is God made the moons to mark the seasons and the sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it's night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Now, another little break. All the while, man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. So all of that's taking place. As normal as it is for young lions to roar for their prey, It's just as normal for human beings to go off to their work. That's what we do. That's who we are. It isn't an inconvenience to us. It isn't something that's an aside to us. It isn't something that we have to do as an addendum. It's a gift from God to us in the context of our lives to take dominion, to work. It is value because God works and we work as those who are made in his image. It's great value, obviously, because it enables us to express to our, our being in the image of God, to, to reflect him. Uh, it's of great value to us as well, great value to God, because through our work, God meets our needs. When you pray, and I hope you do, in America, we don't always pray this prayer, Uh, because it seems so natural and easy and all of that. But Jesus commanded us to pray for our daily bread. When you pray for your daily bread, for what are you praying? Well, ultimately, that your material needs would be met. But how do you expect God to meet those material needs? You expect, I trust, God to meet those material needs by way of your work and the work of others. He's made us to be interdependent. We're not only dependent upon him for our lives, 
But he's made it so that we're also dependent upon each other. Now back before sin, and we'll get to the impact of sin in a minute, but back before sin, when love was to be that which bind, bounds people together and bound us with God to love him and to love one another, back in that context, you see, that interdependence was a good interdependence. I'm to love you, you're to love me. In fact, as we see it in the context of the life of the church, love is to bind us together as well. Thus, when Paul speaks of needs being met in the church, especially in those passages in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and chapter 14, when he speaks of how needs are met in the church, these gifts that come by way of the Holy Spirit, he says to us that he's made us to be a body so that the hand cannot say to the foot, I have no need of you. And so we see in the midst of, 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 of our life as redeemed people, as the people of God, that it's God who has made us to be interdependent, which means that if you have a need, God is liable to give what you need to someone else. So that then they, in love to you, will help you, will give. So the Spirit gives various gifts in the context of the body. Not everybody gets all the gifts, right? And so to one, he may give a gift of wisdom, so that when you are confused, that one who has the gift of wisdom comes to love you and help you and give you wisdom. When you're discouraged, there's one who's happy as they could be. There's one who has the gift of encouragement, the the, the gift from the Spirit to go and, and to cheer you up and to help you. You're discouraged. You're praying that God would encourage you. How does he do that? Well, he may do that by just your own reading of the word or just in the context of prayer, just your meditations. But it's quite likely that the way he'll encourage you is to bring someone to you who would bring that word from the Lord, who would pray with you, who would encourage you in the things concerning God, and you would be encouraged. When your life is confused, he may give to someone a gift of administration to come in and help you organize all of that, you see. And so that's this sense. When, when you have a need, when each of us has a need in the context of the body of Christ, God is very likely to supply that from someone else. And what's the mechanism? What's the conduit, if you will, uh, through which that comes? Well, Paul says it's love. If you remember this passage, and you can look this up later, 1 Corinthians 12 list talks to us about the body, and 1 Corinthians 14 again talks to us about the body and about gifts of the Spirit and all of that. Sandwiched in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 is none other than 1 Corinthians 13, right? Which is about what? It's about love. And so the apostle says, pursue love. That's what you should do. And eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Because when we're pursuing love, what happens? We're pursuing the needs that each other has. And as God supplies, he'll do that through us. He's made us to be interdependent. Uh, The gospel, uh, bringing people to faith in Christ, works the same way. How is it that someone comes to faith in Christ? Now we know from our theology, and it's right theology, we know that our salvation is a gift from God. It comes ultimately from him. He's the source. He works by way of his word and spirit and all of that. But when Paul in Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 10, is speaking of those who are to confess Christ, and he even makes the statement that all who, who, who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He then begins to, to spin that out. And how does he spin it? He spins it by saying, well, how can they believe, how can they call on him unless they've heard? And how can they hear unless someone preaches? And how can someone preach unless they're sent? And so you see this interdependence. That even though God is the author of our salvation and he's the one who's responsible for it in that sense and all of that, still he works through us. So much so that when Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, he could say something like this. He would say, well, uh, Apollos uh, planted and I watered, but it was God who brought the increase. We're interdependent. And so God makes this creation. And then he says to human beings, he says, well, here it is. Now, here's your charge. I want you to go, and if you will, extend this. 
And if I could use a word that the old Puritans used, and they used it like this, they could say, I want, God would say, I want you to improve upon it. That is to take what's here and then cultivate it. Put it in a way that is beneficial to people. Uh, it was Martin Luther who, who put it like this. He said, God gives the wool, but not without labor. If it's on the sheep, it makes no garment. In other words, God gives us the sheep. But then we're to deal with that. If you're cold and you look at a sheep, what do you do? Oh, I wish I had that wool. Well, get it. Make a sweater. All right? And so that's this sense. If you're hungry, what do you do? You plant and you reap. Right? And, and, and so that's the means by which God supplies our needs. He does it. We're interdependent. We mustn't forget that he's behind all of it. That's why during our offering time I read from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which for me is just a foundational kind of passage into understanding, in understanding our lives. It was a the situation where God had brought the Israelites out of Egypt and they were going to be entering into this land of milk and honey, as he called it, this promised land, be a land of great blessing if they remained in covenant with God and obeyed him and all of that. And so the danger was that they would forget God and think that it was all them. And so that's the danger, most especially for us in the U.S., most especially for us in America. So he said, take care lest you forget uh, the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today. Lest when you've eaten and are full and built good houses and, and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Beware lest you stay in your heart. My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenants that he swore to your forefathers as it is to this, to, as it is to this day. So we mustn't forget that which uh, God gives so that uh, we may work. This idea of improving upon, I'll never forget, as growing up as a kid, my, my father would teach me, and he did this in the context of his life, and still does, bless his heart. Uh, he says, wherever you find yourself, improve it. Make it better. Do something. <laughs> he said, that's our calling. Uh, that's our calling. Uh, there was a, um, a ditch uh, behind my parents' house before their house was wiped out by one of the hurricanes in Florida. And uh, it was just a regular ditch in Florida. It was just to collect water. And I would call home over, over the years, and I would say to my mom, where's dad? And she'd say, he's out in the ditch. And I'd say, what's he doing? She'd say, making it better. And so after a time, his area of the ditch was all cleaned out. And he had planted upon the banks of the ditch. And even if you knew my dad his era, he would cut out these little birds and paint them, stick them there. Little bird houses, just paint them and stick them out there. Tulips, good Calvinist. And he would take them and he would paint them and he would stick them there. It was the prettiest ditch you ever saw in your life. What else was he to do, you see? And so we're to cultivate, we're to make it better, we're to improve it. And so you see, the way that God works in our work, and we must keep this in our mind, because it's so easy not to. It's so easy for us to separate what we do in all those hours that we do it in the context of our work, whether it's being a mom, whether it's being an accountant, whether it's being a pastor, whether it's being a plumber, whatever that is, it's sometimes so hard to see what we do as having any impact anywhere. But God says, no, no, no. It really does. It really does. This is how I meet the needs of people. This is how I meet your needs. This is how I have you serve and love others in the context of this work that you do. Don't divorce it, what you do, from all of that see all the way through. Now, the difficulty is, of course, that sin impacts our work. 
Uh, we can see that sin impacts every one of these creation ordinances. Sin, sin, sin impacts marriage and family. God speaks, as you know, after Adam and Eve sin, he speaks to the woman uh, because she's primarily in the context then of family. He, he speaks to her and he, he, he says that your desire, that, that I'll, I'll multiply your pain in childbearing and pain, you shall bring forth children. And so the whole notion of family, your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. The whole notion of family and raising children and having children and all that is affected by sin. And then he speaks to Adam concerning work. And he says, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Whatever that means... We realize it means that work all of a sudden got harder. There was a sense in which before it seemed that the earth was delighted to bring forth stuff for us in various ways that we would easily cultivate it and easily use it in in some way. It would all be a joy. And and now we hear words like toil and, and sweat. And it seems like the earth wins because at the end we return to it in death. So now the environment, the, the circumstances of our work uh, become more difficult because of, of sin. And, 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 and we see it, of course, in all, kinds of, in all kinds of ways, even in the context of particular sins, as we mentioned during our time of confession. You may have wondered, what, where are we going there? And if you know us well enough, you know thematically it was going to tie in somewhere. But, 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 but the work that we do, the, the great danger is that sin results in, 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 in idolatry in the context of our work. See, as I've said millions of times, I'm sure, I have a problem with lying, obviously. Uh, I've said it a lot, that, that, that's true. Um, uh, that, um, that God, as the one we worship, is the one we look to to define our lives. That's what God gets to do. Anything that defines us other than God, thus anything that defines us differently than the way God defines us, is an idol. In our culture, we have to be very cautious of sexual passion defining us. That's why in the Bible it calls sexual immorality idolatry. Because we're defined by, whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, either one, if we allow those those passions to define us, that's idolatry. And we can allow our work to define us as well. This is who I am. Thus, this this is the way that I must think. This is the way that I must be because I'm whatever it is. And then our work directs us. It's a thing that makes decisions for us. It says this is who we are. This is what we're going to do in the context of our lives. And it's the final arbiter that we make it an idol. And this is the place I find my delight. You see, if God is God to us, then he's the one who defines us. He's the one we look to for direction. And it's in him that we find our delight. That's the sense of, of God. So our work, because of sin, can become an idol to us. Not only that, all of our motives can become confused. The motive, ultimately, for all that we do in the context of relationships with others is to be love. Uh, and we know that, 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 that that's most easily expressed. The closer we are to someone, it's really hard if you, know, if you make a, a little small part that fits in a big machine that ends up in, in India. It's really hard to love that person all the way over there. But this context of love is to, to drive us. But, but we realize that in the context of work relationships, it doesn't always. In fact, it was Adam Smith, uh, those who know these things, have called him the sort of founder of modern economics, uh, even though he wrote in the 17th century. This famous quote out of a book called uh, The Wealth of Nations. He writes, It's not from the benevolence of the butcher or brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner but from their regard to their own self-interest. We address ourselves, therefore, not to their humanity, meaning their love, but to their self-love. 
and never talk to them about our own necessities, but to their advantages. That's simply how it works, isn't it? And, and so he recognized and conceded to it, even in that century, and said, okay, we could build a whole economic system based upon this appealing to people's self-interest. That doesn't necessarily mean that all people are being selfish or greedy in the context of the decisions they make, but certainly they're interested in their own values, their own self, and all that that means, though, our motives are to be loved. We see that, that, that sin can work in our work relationships and cause us to be, to be prideful. To be prideful, that I can say my work is better than your work, and I can hold that over you. We can live in fear, which leads to a great deal of workaholism, for instance. I can live in fear, uh, thinking that it all depends upon me, and therefore uh, I must do this, else uh, I won't have that which I need. It can lead to a great deal of frustration. The... uh, Author of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes just simply means preacher. So the preacher uh, lays out in his book this notion of, of work. And he speaks to work like this. He speaks to work by saying that, um, why do I do this? Why do I toil? Nothing ever really changes. Nothing ever really is accomplished by the course of my work. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, it just continues to go on. In fact, the, the whole notion of Ecclesiastes is, is, it, is, is that life just continues on. That which is crooked stays crooked. Uh, you can't make it straight. How can that happen? And so it just keeps on going on. In fact, he even makes the comment, I, I toil and I toil and I accumulate and I accumulate. Why? Because I die and I leave it all. In fact, he goes on to say, I'm probably going to leave it to some spendthrift, some ne'er-do-well. Somebody's going to use it in a way I would never want them to use it. So why am I even doing this? Sin leads to a great deal of frustration. We wonder, why is it that I'm working as I am, spending all this time uh, doing all of this? And then, of course, we know that sin impacts just relationships, just our lives. Uh, we work with em- other employees uh, who are selfish, who are lazy, who, do, who are unproductive, who don't do a good job, who may lie, who may cheat, who may steal. Sin influences all of that, who are hard to get along with. We may work with employers that exploit us, that, that don't pay us really, uh, really what we deserve and all of that. And so we, we have all of these conflicts in the midst of that. And then to top all of that off, we understand how our own personal sin affects our own work. And now we may be that person who's unproductive. We may be that person who's lazy. We may that be that person who's difficult to get along with in the context of work. We may be that person who's frustrated, who's, who's all of those things. And we fight that in the context of our own lives, in our own lives as well. But we must remember that work is not the curse. Work is inherently good. Sin affects the circumstances of our work, but it doesn't negate the institution of work. In fact, when Jesus comes, the question for us is, how is it then that our work is redeemed by him? We know that that, that sin separates us from God, so when Jesus comes and we trust in him, then we're united, we're reconciled to God. Therefore, being reconciled to God, we're reconciled then in a good way. We're brought into a righteous relationship with all that God would have for us, including our work. We can see, and we talked about this last year when we talked about marriage and family and all of that. We can see how the work of Christ redeems marriage and how husbands and wives are to relate and how parents are to relate to children and all of that. We see how it how it redeems our whole concept of, of rest and Sabbath, that we come into the presence of God and we worship him, and it puts all that, our lives, into right perspective. But now, even in the context of our work lives, we have to see work through the redemption of Christ and thus see it rightly, that it is from God, that it is a gift to us, that it does mean that when we're working, we're doing that which is pleasing to God. Now, obviously, there is work that isn't pleasing to God, that which we can't do to his glory and to his honor. There was a great story about a, a, a mobster named Mickey Cochran who went decades ago to a Billy Graham crusade. He, had got, he went forward, and everybody was thrilled about it. However, he didn't change his profession. 
And so after a while, someone who knew him, a believer, went to him and said, how is it that you can continue on being a gangster after your profession of faith? And he said, well, there are Christian artists. There are Christian doctors. I'm a Christian gangster. <laughs> and they said, no. So there's work that obviously is unlawful, if you will, from God's perspective. But the bulk of work that we engage in isn't unlawful. And that's why when the Apostle Paul was speaking in the church of Corinth, writing to them about their lives, he said to them, don't change your, the, the place to which you have been called when you become a believer. You don't need to do that. If you're a slave, you can remain a slave. Now, if you can get out of that, that's fine. You're free, but there's no need to. You can be a Christian, you can follow Christ in the midst of even being a slave in that culture. And he says, so you needn't change that. You needn't change your occupation, if you will, when you become a Christian. And why is that? Well, the reason is because when we come to faith in Christ, we all become part of this kingdom of priests. The historic language is the priesthood of all believers. What does that mean? Well, it means that all of life then is holy. That as a priest, all of life is offered to God. It doesn't need to be offered through anybody other than Jesus. It comes from us. Our whole lives are offered to God. Everything we do is holy. Thus, if we're working, our work is holy. Thus, the scripture says that whatever we do, we're to do it to the glory of God. Whatever we do, we're to do with great thanksgiving to him. We're to do it as unto him, even most especially our work. For instance, in Colossians in chapter 3, is the apostles uh, talking to those who in that culture are slaves, different than slaves as we would know them and as, as our horrible cultural experience uh, was, um, but, um, but slaves uh, nonetheless. And he says to them in verse 23 of, of Colossians chapter 3, he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance of your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. So our whole lives then are directed to God. And so regardless of what we're doing, it is to be to his glory and directed to him, thus holy. For us as believers, there is no secular sacred it's all sacred. It's all unto him. In fact, this is the way through which God meets the needs of his people and really all in his creation. He meets the needs of people this way. If we stop working, then the needs of people will not be met. This is how he does it. In fact, he calls us. Martin Luther used this wonderful expression, vocation. We have callings. We have callings in the context of our, of our family. We have callings as husbands, callings as wives, callings as children, callings as uncle and aunts and uh, grandparents and all of that. We have a calling there. God calls us. And in the midst of that, we're to fulfill that calling. There are callings in the context of the church. Some are pastors, some are evangelists, some are teachers, some are prophets, and all of that sort of thing in the context of church. And so there are callings in the midst of that. There are callings in the midst of the workplace. There are plumbers and doctors and lawyers and mechanics and, 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 and janitors and, and, and all kinds of people in the midst of the workplace each called by God as a priest in the midst of that situation to offer that work up to God in, 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 in the glory of God, to reflect God so that their needs and other people's needs would be met. In fact, Luther put it like this one time. He said, God hides himself in our vocations. In other words, God meets our needs even though we don't see him by way of the vocations of people, the callings of people. Even unwittingly, they're unbelievers who serve our best interests. Well, we have a wonderful Christian contractor. There are many unbelievers who are building us a sanctuary in which we're going to worship God. And so unwittingly, they're building this structure that will be used in such a way that people will worship God. And if they don't do that, we don't have that to worship God. 
there are unbelieving doctors who bring healing and health to us. And there are believing doctors who do the same. But you see, see, God works through that. If, if we lay down on the job, you see, we're, we're dishonoring God. If we don't do our jobs in such a way that's to his glory, we're dishonoring him. Don't think that what you do in the context of your vocation, the context of your job, is minimal at all. It's a high calling. It's a high calling from God to do that work. And in the midst of that, he meets the needs of his creation. You see that? It's all, it's all holy. A pastor's preaching is no more holy than a plumber's plumbing. Especially when the pipes are leaking. Right? Who do you need then? You call me, I'll pray for you. You can call somebody who knows what they're doing and they'll come and stop the leak and you'll give thanks to God for them. As well you should, you see. And that's the value of everyone's work. Luther put it like this. He says, just as those who are now called spiritual, that is priests, bishops, or popes, are neither different from other Christians nor superior to them, except that they're charged with the administration of the word of God and the sacraments, which is their work and office, so it is with the temporal authorities. They bear the sword and rod uh, in their hands to punish the wicked and protect the good. A cobbler, a smith, a peasant, each has his own work and office of his trade, and yet they are all alike consecrated bishops and priests. Further, everyone must benefit and serve every other by means of, this own, of his own work or office, so that in this way many kinds of work may be done for the bodily and spiritual welfare of the community, just as all the members of the body serve one another, you see. Our work is how we reflect and glorify God. It is no small thing. So, we do our work as Paul writes to these slaves, as we are doing it unto, if you will, Christ. So that's the challenge for us. That's the word to us. That as those who are in covenant with God, we're priests. He's made us to be priests unto him so that all is offered up to him, including, perhaps, most especially, the work that we do so that the needs of people would be met so that God would receive glory as the one who meets our needs. There's a book that came out a number of years ago, and it was good in many ways. I won't give you the title because I don't want you to read it. But the thesis was a man who had been quite successful and had made some money and all of that so he could do this, unlike the rest of us. Uh, those are the people that write books, by the way, often. Uh, <laughs> I said, if I was them, I'd do this too, but I'm not. Uh, it was a book, and he said, the first part of my life, I lived to be successful. And now that I've been successful, I want to live the latter half of my life to be significant. And so he was able to quit his job and do some other things. In some sense, I understand his concept, but there's a flaw in there. The flaw is that doing your work means you're not being significant. If your work isn't identified with particular things like whatever it would be to help people directly or most especially in this case to do what we would call gospel ministry. Whatever it is that you do in the work that you do, do it. That is significant intrinsically. And our work isn't just significant so we can use it uh, as, as a place to witness. Now, we might be able to do that. And we're called to be witnesses. We're not all called to be evangelists. But we're called to be witnesses. That's a vocation that we all have. We're all to, to testify in whatever way, in all kinds of ways, in any kind of way, if you will, that God calls us to, to, to Christ. But there are some people 
who will never get to speak of Christ in their workplace. It just simply is impossible. It just simply won't happen. Their work is significant unto God. I've heard people say, you know, I really don't like my job. I really don't, I really don't care about my job that much. I just want to, to be there to witness, and I appreciate that. But you're only fulfilling your calling in part because God also calls you to work. When Paul made tents as a tent maker, the apostle Paul made tents so that he wouldn't have to rely on anyone else's giving to him their income. No. He made tents, I trust. They were really good tents. I don't think he complained and said, well, I'm just doing this so I don't have to get money from you so I can tell you that I love you. And he said, I think he really made good tents because that was his vocation, a calling. And he said, I'm going to make a tent that's going to really help whoever gets this tent. And they're going to say, what a great tent. Thanks. Our work is significant because of God. It reflects him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us good work to do. And we pray that we wouldn't complain about it, but that we would do it. And Lord, we know that our sin and the sin of everybody else makes this work more difficult uh, than we would like it to be, than it would otherwise to be, we know a day will come when the whole earth will be redeemed and, and, uh, and it won't fight back and, and life on the new earth um, wherein we work will be always a delight. But till then, Father, I pray that we trust Christ. That we take what is here and we cultivate it in a way that's a blessing. And we see through that you, that you've called us to it, that you're working through it, that you're blessing others. And this is a way that we serve our neighbor and love them. May we find joy in that. Father, in these days too, we pray for those in particular needs in our congregation. We pray for Eva uh, Kramer as she recovers from her surgery. Uh, Father, bless her, heal her. For Elaine Jones, the same, that she would recover from her surgery as well. And Father, we give you thanks for babies. We thank you for Sawyer Parker, uh, Callista and Matt's uh, new little boy, and for this little Ezra Howard. Um, we give you thanks for him as well. God be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.